0: Pastor Daniel, I'm one of the lead pastors here at uh, Res Church. I'm really excited about the Bible in a Year plan. Uh, it is um, specifically the, the plan that we're going to go through, which is just you know a, a division of Scripture over the course of a year. takes about ten minutes to read per day, maybe sometimes twelve. Uh, so I, I'm excited that you know the commitment's not super high from everybody. I understand that you know you make New Year's resolutions and uh, January 1st rolls around, and we all start, and then the gym is empty by like 21 days, right? Because the average New Year's resolution fails at 21 days. So I'm gonna try really hard to get you to 22 this year. <laughs> baby steps, baby steps. Uh, it's, a, it's a very good plan, but beyond that, uh, the devotion. So there's a pastor who started a prison ministry in the UK, his name is Nikki Gumbel, and it exploded all over the UK in prisons everywhere, ended up being the most successful uh, recovery program coming out of prison, probably ever created. He wrote this uh, set of devotions that goes with the Bible reading plan, and then he recorded it, and uh, he did 365 devotions. And they're amazing. I learned so much about the Bible, uh, doing this plan and reading his devotions, uh, and what he wrote about scripture. Um, we are uh, coming into the holidays. Next week, we'll start our Christmas series for four weeks called The Unexpected King. This is the best opportunity, probably outside of Easter, that you're going to have to uh, find people who are receptive to going to church who normally don't go to church. And we know statistically that the number one way that people who don't go to church go to church is because they were invited by you. The national average uh, in, in the United States, the national average of churchgoers is that uh, when they survey churchgoers and say, have you invited someone to church in the past year, the national average is 2%. So I'm trying to help you out here. You have an opportunity if you waited all year and have not done this, you don't have to be in that pathetic statistic. You got four weeks to give it a shot here and, and uh, invite someone to church and maybe uh, they'll come with you and have an opportunity to hear the gospel. Uh, so I hope you take that opportunity to extend an invitation to someone that God has put providentially in your path to invite into your life, into your home, or into our church. Now, we're in week three of this series called 100. We started with this idea that um, God wants all of our heart, not part of it. Uh, Not some of it, not the portions we're willing to give. He wants all of it. And then last week, uh, Nate talked to us about, I'm sorry, last week we talked about all of our relationships. So Nate talked to us about all of our heart. Last week, I got to talk to you about all of our relationships, that every relationship in our life is an opportunity for us to view people the way God views people, which is quite different than we view people. Uh, because of the way he loves us. And so today we're gonna finish this series up with this idea of all of our goals or all of our aspirations, all of our dreams that uh, when God saves you and he puts his spirit inside you, uh, really it is our opportunity for him to transform us to the point that everything that we begin to dream about is ways that glorify Him, and that doesn't just mean that they're all church-related or ministry-related, but rather that God gets glory when we uh, work well in our job. When you parent your children well, God gets glory. When you, uh, if you, if you work in an auto shop, when you change tires, you do so for the glory of God. And uh, he wants to capture all of your imagination, all of your mind, all of your dreams, all of your hopes, all of your aspirations. And so we want to look at that today. And what we're going to do is we're going to turn to this uh, very intimate, very, very tender letter that a mentor is writing to his young protege. Uh, And so the Apostle Paul mentored a young man named Timothy And uh, he raised him up, uh, went on mission trips with him, trained him, and then ultimately Timothy would go to Ephesus to take over as the lead pastor of a network of house churches. It was a very large and prosperous church by that point, and uh, he would take over as what was a relatively young pastor. He was a fairly introverted young man, and so uh, Paul writes him uh, twice, actually, to encourage him, to give him lessons to talk to him about some of the things that he needs to remember as he goes out alone to become this pastor of this church. And so we're gonna start in 2 Timothy, chapter two, and we're gonna cover verses one through seven today and look at a mentor who has invested in this young man for quite some time uh, and take a look at what he is leaving him as sort of a legacy, a reminder of some things about ministry. Starts this way. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, I got one verse into reading this, and I and I just I stopped because I thought, can you be st- strengthened by grace? Um, that seems like a weird thing to be strengthened by. I like pre-workout personally and Red Bulls. <laughs> but but he's talking to a pastor who probably feels fairly isolated. He's gone to pastor this church. He's kind of been left by his mentor who's moved on. Uh, and, and he says, be strengthened by grace. And I don't think of grace as something that, that strengthens. When I think about grace, I think about a lot of different things, but, but I don't think about being strengthened by it. The, the, the word for strengthened here is in dunamo. In dunamo, it's Greek. And it means to be empowered by. So, so, so to be empowered by grace Again, I just, that's not the way I think of grace. You you could be grateful for grace. You could be thankful for grace. You might even be excited about grace, but to be strengthened by grace just seems so odd. Uh, Grace means unmerited favor, it means favor that you don't deserve. It's mentioned 159 times in the New Testament, and it's almost always referenced as a gift from Christ. But Jesus himself never really mentions grace. So we go look at all the the things that we've recorded that Jesus says. He doesn't really talk about grace at all. And yet it's mentioned 159 times and it's always tied to Jesus. John actually tells us that Jesus was full of grace. In fact, as we read the New Testament, what we'll learn is that Jesus is the embodiment of grace, of this unmerited favor. So what does that mean? What What is unmerited What is undeserved? Well, let's think about what's undeserved about the gospel real quick. Why we talk about grace so much, why the New Testament would talk about grace so much when it comes to Jesus. You know what was undeserved? Me being saved from my sin, undeserved. Me being forgiven for my sin, undeserved. Me being granted a new heart, undeserved. Me being gifted and given the Holy Spirit, undeserved. Me being promised eternal life, undeserved me being counted as a child of God undeserved me being transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit in my life undeserved these are all undeserved things unmerited things I read a phenomenal quote that talks about the difference between uh, grace and some of the other attributes about love that we would see in the New Testament says this love that goes upward is worship so loving God is not grace, it's worship. or worshiping God. Love that goes upward is worship. Love that goes outward is affection. Love that stoops is grace. Grace is unearned and unmerited. It is an undeserved privilege, not an exclusive right. And remember that the grace you receive so freely cost Jesus his life. So grace is God, Jesus, stooping down, to us, coming to us when we did not do anything to deserve it. In fact, we were his enemies. Now, there's this, this thing that Paul is alluding to when he says strength in, in, uh, strengthened in the grace that is in Jesus Christ that we see alluded to and, and mentioned in other parts of the New Testament that grace will strengthen us because it it actually is this source of power. You go, oh, what is, how is it a source of power? Well, Listen to the number of times that we hear about power in the New Testament and how it's tied to grace. In 1 Thessalonians 1.5, it says this, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. This is Paul talking about the difference between the gospel and other religions. Those might have sounded good, but but what came with the gospel was power. In John 15.4, John will explain that to do anything, to have any of this power of the gospel required dependence on Christ. In John 15, 4, and 5, he says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, this is Jesus speaking, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart, me, apart from me, you can do nothing. nothing. So, so, so grace is supposed to lead us to a power, but it is a power that comes from dependence, because apart from Christ, There is no power. You can do nothing. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul will explain it this way. But he said to me, this is him praying to God and God speaking back to him. My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so the power of Christ may rest upon me. Why am I reading you all these verses? The very nature of grace is that God has come to us, he has stooped down to us, we who are dead in our sins in the grave, we who are stuck in the mud of our own sin to pick us up to save us. Now, he, the, the irony of, of, of the, the sinful nature that we have is that at some point he awakens our soul and we see that he is reaching down and we just receive what he's giving us. We, we didn't do anything at all, we just, we, we see that God is saving us and we, go, we finally come to this epiphany, we think it's us sometimes, Right? God's saving me. Oh my goodness. You think of a a, a parent lifting their child out of the mud or out of the pool because they can't swim, right? And you grab hold of the father and you begin to realize he's saving you. And then at some point we're like, I don't need him. I'm gonna let let go. I'm I'm fine here, right? But but the whole idea of, of dependence is that there's not ever a point where you let go. If you want power, it comes from the father, It all started because he reached down to come get us. But there's no point at which you're like, well, I've had enough of that help. So so the Christian life is one in which there is almost limitless power from the Father if you will stay connected. Philippians 4.13 says it this way, I can do all things through him who strengthens me actually talking about suffering, not you getting a promotion. But anyways, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, empowers me. Jesus, uh, before, right after the resurrection, when he's speaking to the disciples about what's to come next, he, he's trying to explain to them that uh, everything is about to change. And he says this in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power... When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus is not simply going to lift us up out of the mud once and clean us off and go, hey, don't mess up again. Because let me tell you how long, you guys have had toddlers, you clean them up. How long does it take them to find the mess again? I mean, you blink and you're like, where did I, how did you get churros? Like, the, when did I leave the sugar out? Like, what is happening? The, the, the formula was never that Jesus would save you once and then you would handle it from here. There's no point in which Jesus is driving, you're like, you know what, I think you've driven long enough, maybe, maybe it's my turn, please don't. No, Jesus is saying, listen, there there is a power, a supernatural power not only to transform your life but to impact the very edges of the world. However, it will only come when I send it, and it will only exist and empower you when you stay dependent on me. And so to start this little, this little section of encouragement, Paul is talking to Timothy, this, this isolated, lonely pastor who has a, a large job ahead of him, who's very young, he's very introverted, he's got this big church with a bunch of messes, and, and he says this, listen, be empowered by grace. It is the very grace of Jesus that is the source of power, and if you ever get that twisted and begin to think that it's some sort of competency, you're going to be in a real pickle. It's going to be a problem. So, so, so listen, Christian, listen to me. Lean into grace. Think about grace. Be consumed by grace. Be, like, like I, I would pray that your thoughts are just dominated by what Jesus did and is doing all the time. Because you will be strengthened with power coming from the Holy Spirit that can accomplish Anything. But the moment you lose dependence, the moment you, leave, you, you, you lose that urgent need for grace, you can do nothing. I want you to think about Peter. So there's the story of the Bible where there's a storm and the disciples wake up on the boat and, it, and it's gotten really stormy and they look out and Jesus is walking on the water. And Peter, because he always talks first and thinks second, says, let me walk out to you on the water. I, I don't know who says that. That's the last thing I'm thinking about in a storm on the ocean. But anyways, he says, let me walk out there. And so Jesus calls him, and in just utter, like, man, if Jesus doesn't show up, it's gonna get bad. He walks on the water until the moment that he looks down and stops being dependent on Jesus and begins to think about, he's walking on water. Oh, now you're sinking. And your life and my life are the same way. God will do tremendous, ridiculous, supernatural, could never believe it things in your life until the moment you think you're in charge. The moment you begin to think, I'm doing pretty good. Oh my Lord, the bottom of that ocean's awful cold. Grace gives power. It's unmerited, it's promised, and it's limitless power. And if Timothy's going to achieve anything in Ephesus, he needs power. If you and I are going to see change in our lives, we need power. If we want to see kingdom impact around our lives, we need power. If we have loved ones that are far from the Lord, we need power. If we want to see an impact in our community, in our neighborhoods, we need power. Not simply intellect, not simply wisdom, not simply resources. It's not enough to be talented or passionate. Those things are all great, but the gospel is so much more than that. Being dependent on his grace is is everything. Because being dependent means that we're looking for him, we're sensitive to where he moves so that we can follow him. See, if you know that Jesus is your source of power, I mean, if you you feel that to your bones, then when Jesus takes a right-hand turn, you do too. When he leads you into difficult places, you're gonna follow. But the moment we begin to get a little comfortable and think that we've kind of got it sorted out and Jesus begins to lead us somewhere, we begin to evaluate our options. You ever evaluated your options? You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? Where you're like, oh, oh, that looks kind of difficult. I don't, I don't know if I like that or not. I don't know if I like that or not. Every one of us said that probably a million times. It's not anywhere in Scripture. There's no point where it's like, be dependent on Jesus. I'm the vine, you're the branches. You should sit around for a while and think about each decision as I lead and decide whether or not the shepherd is a good shepherd or not. And we do, all the time. We're dependent, he delivers the rest. Verse two, here's what he's gonna tell Timothy to do. I want you to keep just a careful view of what he's about to tell Timothy to focus on. I, I, this, is, this is the biblical model. This is the model that Jesus is gonna lay out for what it looks like to make an impact and spend our lives on kingdom impact. Here you go. Verse two, so be dependent on Jesus, be strengthened by his grace, Verse two, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What is he saying? Okay, listen, young pastor, who's in charge of a church now, who maybe has all these goals. You know what? I really want to see is, I, man, I really like to redo the the uh, the sanctuary and maybe get some some pads on the. No, no, no. What what are the goals for you, young pastor? You are going to invest in kingdom work for the future. Man, this guy's really young. Why is he already talking about the future? The future's, I got my whole life ahead of me. No, 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 no. No, you don't. You gave it to me. Your job now is to invest in the next generation. He's talking about the next generation. Timothy's like 30 years old. Next generation? yeah. So the first word is, he says, entrust. And I love the translation to entrust because you don't entrust things that you don't care about, right? Like, like no one says, uh, Hey, can I have a napkin? And you're like, I'm going to entrust this in your possession. I just want a napkin, bro. And you, you only entrust things that are valuable, right? He goes, what you've heard from me in my presence of many witnesses, entrust. It's precious. It's valuable. It's worth it. Hey, these, these, this gospel is precious. Hey, this mission, this effort, this kingdom work is valuable. And I've entrusted it to you, Timothy, and your job is to entrust it to others. So, so first and foremost, don't discount What God has done in your life. Every one of you, if you sat here for a moment, can begin to think about people who have entrusted in you. They have invested in you. They have spent time and effort, they have sweat equity in your life. They have invested in you. Paul has invested in Timothy. Don't discount what you've been given. Don't dismiss what's been done in your life. The work that Christ has done in your life, the work that others have done in your life. We keep talking about vision. We've been letting you know for some time that the elders have been working through the year on vision. We went away to our elder retreat. I began to try to write up all of the thoughts Uh, that that we put together um, so we can roll these out to you next year. Um, Let me tell you why we're so passionate about vision. Because we've been entrusted the gospel. We've been given resources. The primary resource that, that we as pastors in this church have been given is you. We've been entrusted resources and then told, now go follow me be dependent on me and make a kingdom impact so as we begin to see god move in this church and in this neighborhood and in these communities it is the most listen to me urgent thing in the world because jesus says so and he's coming again and people's souls are at stake This is the biblical model. I entrusted to you, now you entrust to others. I invested in you, now you invest in others. So I sat around all over Thanksgiving and I began to think about people that had invested in me, invested in me. Now, if you had uh, a really good family life, if you had parents that that loved you and invested in you, uh, you may take that for granted. You shouldn't, you should find mom and dad and thank them. But, but there's at least some uh, rationale that you could say, listen, even, even non-Christian you know, parents uh, have, have, have some sort of biological reason that they feel compelled to invest in you. But what about people that weren't even related to you? There, there are some people that uh, invested in me when, let me be really honest, man, did I not deserve being invested in. You talk about difficult personalities. In college, when I was probably as far from the Lord as I've ever been, there were people that invested in me for absolutely no reason. I didn't give them any reason. And I was just thinking through... Uh, men and women in my life, especially in college, that invested in me when I was far from the Lord. And so I, I had an opportunity. One of them is uh, Pastor Mark Crawford. He's the pastor of uh, North University Park Church. Only had about 35 people in it. Met in the manager's office above like this big cafeteria because it's the only place they could find. And uh, they, man, that guy invested in me. I just showed up, just a mess. And he, he met with me. He invested in me. He chased after me. At one point, he rented a room in his house to me. And uh, another guy named Steve Storm, who was a graduate student at USC, who invested in me. And man, he he followed me. He was relentless to love me. And so I had an opportunity uh, this week to write them letters of Thanksgiving, and just just remind them, hey, I don't know if you remember investing in me 25 years ago, but it mattered. And I still remember things you said. I still remember the way you lived your life for the gospel. I still remember being struck by the fact that you loved me when I was unlovable. And you may have no idea the impact, but I want to tell, I want to encourage you that your gospel investment mattered. It mattered. And, and, And let me as briefly as possible, tell you the fruit and just write out the impact that God's had on my life because you invested in me, because you loved me for no reason other than because you love the Lord. That's the model in the Bible. We invest in others. Sometimes we never get to see the harvest. Sometimes we never see the fruit, but we're called to invest in others. As a pastor, Timothy's a very young pastor. He's Paul's already talking to him about the next generation, the generation after. Um, my goal as a, as a pastor in this church, as a lead pastor, as the primary preaching pastor right now in this church, is to not be up here very long. I don't plan on going anywhere. I plan on being in this church until they bury me over there next to Jack Peacock in the park. <laughs> he's not actually in the park. It's a joke. I will be, but he's not. I'm getting cremated, so I'll be all over the park. <clears throat> my, my goal is not to preach until I die. My goal is to raise up faithful men and women to lead the church and then get out of their way and then stick around in the church to support them while they lead. See, I don't think the biblical model, and Paul doesn't show us this either, is for uh, pastors to hold on as the primary authority until they die. I think it's to raise up a next generation then get out of the way, but stick, stick around and support those younger leaders as they grow, because otherwise you end up with leaders in the church that have no one that has been there and is supporting them. So so the goal is not to see how much power and authority we can accumulate. It's to see how fast I can entrust and raise up great leaders and get out of their way. And that, that means the moment you start your ministry, you're already looking at who can you raise up? Who can I invest in? Where can I entrust this to faithful men and women? So here's my questions for you. Just reading verse two, who are you investing in? Who are you investing in? I hope you have a list. I hope you're thinking about it. If you don't have a list, I hope you're praying about it. I hope you're seeking it out. I hope you're asking the Lord, who am I investing in? Who am I investing in? And who's investing in you? Both of those are critically important. And it takes you being assertive and proactive and and seeking the Lord and, and, and with some urgency asking him to find that. Sometimes it falls in your lap. A lot of times you gotta push on it. But here's what, here's what I refuse to do. I refuse to miss opportunities to invest in people or be invested in because I'm too passive or too complacent. There's an urgency to Paul's words. Entrust this in faithful men. This matters. All right. So he's just told him, be strengthened in Christ's grace. Be strengthened, empowered by this grace. And then your job is to take what I've invested in you and invest this in faithful men and then verse three, he's going to say this, and this seems like a, a big move from what he just finished talking about. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Oh man, we're American. We don't like that word, suffering. Woo! We have such a horrible theology of suffering in America. Uh, we we'll are probably have to do an entire series in 2024 just on Suffering just to work through how poorly we understand that word. Because in America, it is the thing we run from. Like we are all about comfort. You know exactly what I'm saying, right? Like if there's a premium bed, but then there's an extra premium bed, I'm so tempted. That's the American version of suffering. I didn't get the extra premium. Like we just don't get suffering. So Paul says, share in the suffering of Christ Jesus like a good soldier. Ooh, soldier. Now, this is one of two times he's about to mention you as a Christ follower. And and, and there's lots of words that we, we, you know, we we just uh, earlier this month talked about. We we are sheep following a shepherd, and there's different analogies that you get. You're a vine connected to the branch, but now all of a sudden he's going to call us a soldier, and there's so many different connotations that come with that. Um, But but just a couple, just a reminder for you: the Bible is very clear about this. As you come to Christ, you're on a mission. You're a soldier because you're on a mission. You serve a king. And he doesn't make suggestions. He's given you leaders. And you have limited time to serve. These things are all true of soldiers and they're all true of Christians. Now, I'm going to read you uh, three analogies that Paul's about to give Timothy. And they're fun, they're kind of fun. And then I'm going to break down each one just real real briefly. uh, 2 Timothy 2 4 through 7. So he just said, share in suffering like a good soldier. And then he's going to say this. He's going to use soldier again. Verse four, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. All right. He just said three things. These are your takeaways from, from this whole passage. If, if you miss it, as I break it down. Number one, focus like a soldier. Number two, be disciplined like an athlete. Number three, work like a farmer. Focus like a soldier, be disciplined like an athlete, work like a farmer. Second Timothy 2.4, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. What is he saying? You, you've got to be able to. When Jesus pulled you out of the grave and placed his spirit in you. When you went from dead to alive, when you went from dark to light, when you went from the sons of disobedience to a child of God, there was a binary change. This is, this is, there's no, this is black and white, right? There's no like almost saved. There's no almost pregnant. Dead, Dead, alive. Dead, alive. You're alive. Because of that, you're not a civilian. You're a soldier. So stop looking at life like a civilian. This is what he's saying. Your your mind, your goals, why you're here, your mission, everything changed when he made you alive. Soldiers expect a battle and suffering. Civilians expect comfort. Comfort. So if you're constantly wondering about why life is not more comfortable or trying to come up with ways to make life more comfortable, you're not thinking like a soldier. That's not what soldiers do. They have a mission. They've got to get it done. It's a battle. They expect a battle. They're not surprised by a battle. The the American Christian is just utterly blown away when there's difficulty. Oh, no. You know, like, God must hate me. What? It's a battle. He told you it was coming. Why are you surprised? Soldiers expect the battle plan to be about winning. Civilians expect it to be about them. In a war... If a company of soldiers is told to go hold a, a spot defensively, just in case the enemy might run that way, they don't sit around and go, excuse me, hold on, hold on. I don't, I don't know if I like that. <laughs> what? Just go hold the front. whoa, well, 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 well I'm, I'm not sure that uses my giftings and talents. <laughs> Get out there. Like, what are you doing? You know, if I could prepare for another month or so, Soldier, get your butt out on the line. We think like a soldier. We're supposed to think like a soldier. Civilians don't. Soldiers desire orders and unity. Civilians desire fame and standing out. Soldiers desire orders and unity. There's order to the military. There's someone with a battle plan sending you, hey, here's where I want you to go. Here's what you're gonna do. Here's your responsibility. Civilians are like, how does that Highlight me and my uniqueness as a snowflake. <laughs> You're in a battle. Cut it out. Okay. Think like a soldier. Focus like a soldier. Let, 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 let's get a mentality, not, not of... Um, Everything's going to be terrible. There's great joy in Christ. But listen, your best life is to come. You you got left here on mission. So let's think like that. Secondly, be disciplined like an athlete. So not only 100% of my mind, but 100% of my self-control. Now, listen, if there's anything that Americans struggle with, it is self-control. Amen? Amen. I mean, we are rapidly becoming the most obese country in the world, and a lot of that has to do with just terrible habits. Man, do we have bad habits! Someone, um, uh, I've done CrossFit for about seven, eight years now, and it's always interesting. There are times where I'll talk to someone. This is usually it would be a female who says, "I don't want to do CrossFit because I don't want to get bulky." And I'm like, what do, you, what do you mean bulky? And they're like, you know, have you seen those ladies who do like pro CrossFit and they're like really ripped? I was like, oh, you're not gonna accidentally do that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> trust me, there, there, is, there is no risk of this happening. <laughs> and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm not trying to be insulting. What I'm saying is that pro CrossFitter works out three times a day. They, they don't have jobs. Of the uh, 49 or of the 50 guys who made the finals in CrossFit like two years ago, 49 of them, that was their full time job was to be an athlete. And the 50 had had like a little part time gig and that was it. Like they don't have jobs. Let me tell you what they do. They wake up in the morning and they go work out. And then they go home and they eat a billion calories to go back and work out. After they come back from their second workout, they take a nap. Then they stretch, get rolled out and go back to the gym for their third workout and then go back home and they're eating in between all these things and they sleep 10 hours a day. This is their life. They do that seven days a week. Okay. Here's all all I want to say. You're not accidentally going to fall into that, but they have a goal in mind. There's a story of J.J. Watt who, who's now retired from the NFL, but uh, he was an All-Pro defensive end. And while he was an All-Pro de- defensive end, uh, he did—he refused to date, he refused to party, he refused to drink, he refused to do anything. And he said, "I have a limited time to be a pro. The average NFL career is a couple years long, and then I'll, it'll be over. I'm gonna do everything I possibly can during this limited window to be as the best I can be. That's an athlete." So so what's Paul telling Timothy, listen, you got a limited time here, Christian. You don't even know how much time you have. You don't know if you have tomorrow, but I will tell you this, your life is a vapor. It is here today and it is gone tomorrow. And in this little window, you will be judged because there's going to be a day we're going to stand before the father, you're going to stand in heaven. And he's going to say, listen, I gave you this many years. I gave you this many resources. I gave you this many talents. What'd you do? What'd you do with it? Did you maximize it? Did you invest it? Did you in, entrust it to faithful men and women? What'd you do with it? I watched a lot of Netflix. <laughs> right? We, we weren't we weren't called to not have happiness and joy. Don't don't hear me. But we were called to 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 train And be disciplined like an athlete when it comes to the reason that God left us here on earth. Therefore, and Paul explained this in some other letters, uh, we want to have mastery over our own physical desires. We want to beat our flesh into submission for a greater purpose. We don't want our flesh to have mastery over us. We want to have control over that. The Bible will say your body is a temple, not a vacuum. Your body is a temple. So, so, so we don't, I'm not talking about um, working out or, or, or dieting or do, doing things to, like, to, to look good. I'm saying, hey, there are some disciplined things that you and I can do to ensure we have a longer life. Uh, my neighbor recently quit smoking and uh, he's in his 60s and I'm so excited for him. I know it's hard, right? I know it's hard. But man, if he gets... Two more years with his kids because of it? How how good is it? If we get two more years to make a kingdom impact, right? So so what I'm saying is we've got this limited window. We, We need to put our flesh into submission to this kingdom purpose, not vice versa. And that's what Paul's saying to Timothy. Hey, hey, be disciplined like an athlete. And then third, work like a farmer. Work like a farmer, up early, sometimes to bed late, right? Kind of dominated by work. Some of you guys are in agriculture. I mean, you just work. They are workers defined by the work at times. I mean, we call them a farmer, but it's almost like you can define a lot of their lifestyle by the work. Listen to me. Um, first and foremost I want to love God but I want to be defined by my kingdom work and I wanted to be defined by my kingdom work even before I became a pastor I began to realize as God was changing me how important it was to be on his mission you're going to leave a legacy all you're determining right now before you die is what that legacy is not if you will have one you're going to have a legacy but you're writing it right now I want to be motivated by kingdom work. I want to be motivated by the harvest, the same way a farmer is motivated by the harvest. So he's planting and he's working, and it takes sometimes a long time to see that harvest, and that's kingdom work. We're going to invest. We're going to be disciplined. We're going to work hard, and it's going to take a long time sometimes to see the harvest. I want to read to you... um, the opening vision statement for, for our 2024 and beyond vision. So we're gonna uh, talk to you a little bit about that over the coming months. On January 7th, we're gonna do a little bit of a rollout and then we'll do a lot of rollout in February. But I just wanna read you the, um, the opening paragraph uh, kind of defining what vision is for a church. It says this. What is vision? Our church has a never-changing mission of the Great Commission. We have a culture of things that we value and make us unique that do not change, but rather shape how we do ministry and look at goals. In this journey, we have three to five year segments of our journey where we believe God is specifically leading us into ministry convictions. Our vision is consistent with the mission and has been shaped and formed through our church values, which are our heart. This is the culmination of conviction and observation from the leadership and core of the church through prayer, fasting, and discussion This has been formed into three to five-year plans and goals. These goals are not attainable or achievable by human means. They are BHAGs, big, hairy, audacious goals. We asked God to help us dream God-sized dreams. Either he will show up in power or we will look foolish. Foolish. That that is what it means to be people of faith. God has called you to a mission, Christian. He did not save you by accident. You weren't a surprise to him. You weren't the exception. Everyone else has a mission, but not you. There's no one left on the bench in the kingdom of God. You're a starter. You may not feel like a starter. Most of us don't. We feel like the JV team. But that's who God chose. He didn't choose those of us that looked wonderful in human terms. He chose the weak. He calls us, and then he equips us. So we're gonna close today. Um, I wanna ask you a couple questions as we close. The first is this. Do you know him? Do you know him personally? Not do you know of him, not do you know about him, Not do you know facts about him. Not do you know church. Not do you know Christians. Not did your grandma know him. Do you know him? You can't be strengthened by his grace if you don't know him. There are no dead men strengthened by Jesus' grace. You got to be alive first. Do you know him? If God has been chasing you, if he has been awakening your soul, And you have yet to declare with your mouth to put your faith in Christ. That is the first step in the journey of faith. And I want to invite you today as our elders and our prayer team are up here, I'd love for you to come and talk to one of us and we will walk you through what the Bible says it looks like to do that. Secondly, where are your investments? Who are you investing in? and who's investing in you. Part of the reason we will not stop talking about community groups is because we want you to be known. And we want you to have opportunities to invest in others and for them to invest in you. And then the last, if we're soldiers, are you ready to go to war? Because we've been working now for quite some time um, to discern where God is leading this church. Uh, and we believe he's given us a vision. And so if we're if we're gonna go to war, you should be ready. You should expect suffering. You should expect difficulty. Wars aren't neat, they're very messy. Are you ready? So here's what we're gonna do uh, as our elders and prayer team are up here. If you need prayer for any reason, if you would like to know what it looks like to take steps of faith with Christ, uh, you can come forward. We'd love to pray for you for any reason. Uh, we're gonna celebrate... Uh, communion today observe communion it's a church ordinance it's something that the bible left us and so uh, if you want to grab the elements at these tables you can do that as we sing you can stand with us for the last song grab those go back to your seat Pastor Mark will come explain communion before we take those elements so go ahead you move as the Lord leads you church